Happy Easter, everybody. It's good to be here with you guys. I'm actually going to just start by praying, okay? Yeah, Jesus, you're amazing, and uh, we, we love you. You are the reason why we're here. There's really no reason for this group of people to be gathered together um, on a Sunday apart from you. You are why we are here. And so I just pray that you would help us to center our hearts and our minds on you, your face, um, your goodness, what you've done. And God, my, my request is that you, yeah, you would just open our minds and our hearts and uh, that we would walk out of this building more in all of you, hungrier for you, um, and more willing to just lay our life down for you because you are worthy. Thank you, Jesus, for everything you've, you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we're, we're celebrating something that's very supernatural, right? People don't just raise from the dead, but that's what we're celebrating. Jesus uh, raising from the dead, resurrecting from the dead. And the supernatural is actually what we're going to be preaching on and talking about this morning. In this series, Kingdom Culture, we've been exploring uh, a, a bunch of different elements of what God's kingdom is like. And we've also been discussing different elements of, of what the, the kingdom of this world around us is like, and, and even some of the ways that these two kingdoms uh, conflict or contradict each other. And this morning, we're, we're going to be diving specifically into the fact that the kingdom that we're part of is supernatural. And so I'm actually just going to open with a few scriptures, um, things that we see in the Bible that are extremely supernatural. So Matthew 28, 1 through 6 says, now after the Sabbath, this is a, a, actually Grant just read this scripture, so broken record. But now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled because, and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Resurrection from the dead is supernatural. It's impossible. It's not something that we see happen. Uh, another story, John eleven thirty-eight through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb it was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here's another story of a man, Lazarus, being raised from the dead supernaturally by Jesus after being dead for four days. It's impossible. It doesn't happen. That, that kind of contradicts and defies the natural world that we live in. Resurrection from the dead is impossible. Here's another supernatural thing. This one's a little more simple. John 1, 47 through 48, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is one of Jesus' first interactions with one of his 12 disciples, and he knows exactly who he is before he even met him. Because he, he saw him, right? Another supernatural thing. You can't just know everything about a person, like having never interacted with them or met them before, but Jesus knows Nathaniel uh, before he ever even meets him. One, one last supernatural example of, of something we see in Scripture. Acts 3, 2 through 7. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid down at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. A man lame from birth, crippled, never able to walk. Peter and John look at him and say, rise and walk, and he's miraculously healed. His, his ankles and his feet are strengthened. That's impossible, right? Someone to be miraculously healed by just words that are coming out of the mouths of Peter and John. That's supernatural. That's impossible. And I could, I could go on for probably like 60 hours <laughs> and, and read the whole story of the Bible to you and, and time after time and time again, you just see examples of supernatural things happening. On every page of Scripture, we come in contact with the supernatural. And, and that's what we're exploring today, this idea that God's kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. One of the things that we've elaborated on through the, the course of the semester, though, is that there, there's conflict, right? We have the kingdom of Jesus that he initiated when he came to the earth um, and that we're going to be a part of forever, but there's another kingdom at play, and it's the kingdom of this world. And there is a conflict between these two kingdoms. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This scripture says that our, our fight, our battle, isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly places. It says that, that our enemy, the, the devil, has schemes against us and against the kingdom of God. That word scheme um, if, you, if you dig into it, that Greek word that's used here, it's the word methodia. It's actually the root of the English word method. And what that word means, it means a predictable preset method used and organized evil doing. It could also mean well-crafted trickery. So think about that. We're, we're part of God's kingdom, and there is an, an opposing kingdom. And that kingdom and the leader of it has schemes against us. Preset methods and organized evil doing, well-crafted trickery that he has planned out against us. Schemes. There's a movie that, that I like uh, called The Usual Suspects. Has anybody seen that movie? It's a pretty good movie. Not many. Yeah, it's kind of an older movie. Uh, but in that movie, spoiler, the antagonist, like the bad guy in the movie, is right in front of you the entire time. Like he is... The, one of the main characters in the movie, and you don't realize that he's the bad guy until the very end of the movie. And at the end, he has this quote. 
He says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was getting people to believe that he doesn't exist. Right? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled is getting people to believe that he doesn't exist. And I actually think that that's one of the schemes, well-devised methods that the enemy employs right now, today, to, to blind us and to, to blind people in general of the supernatural, to blind people of the fact that there's a conflict between kingdoms. And, and there's, there's two ways that I think the enemy blinds and confuses us in regards to the supernatural. Uh, one of those ways, from what I've observed, and this is especially true of the culture we live in, is getting people to be totally ignorant um, or to a place of just rejection when it comes to the supernatural. People to just be totally blind to all things supernatural. We'll, we'll call this relativism. Okay, relativism, the definition, or, or naturalism, sorry, naturalism. Relativism will be next. Naturalism is a belief that nothing exists beyond the natural world. Okay, a belief that nothing exists beyond the natural world. And, and I, I feel like our culture is there, right? That might not be the, the worldview, the perspective that people say, like, oh, I'm a naturalist. But a lot of people in, in the culture we live in live and go through life as if the only things that, that exist are things that are physical and material, and that's it. People are blind to the supernatural. And I think that that is a scheme of the enemy. Another scheme of the enemy is a full acceptance of all things spiritual. We can call this relativism. Both of these things, naturalism and relativism, warp the worldview of the Bible and will keep us ineffective in understanding and seeing and even participating in this spiritual battle between these two kingdoms. And in relativism especially, it's kind of like the, the, the mindset of like all things go. I don't know if you've ever heard people say like all paths lead to the same destination. When I do evangelism on campus, I meet so many people that are like, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Uh, if you just be a good person and it, you, you'll get to heaven when you die. That's a very like relativistic way of seeing the world. But I think that that's so common and, and increasingly common on college campuses. Just find your truth. You do you. You know, that's a, a relativistic statement. But I think relativism has actually like opened the door to a bunch of like really dangerous stuff. It, I, don't, I don't know if any of you guys have noticed, but just in the past like 10 years, in America, I feel like there's, there's such like a resurgence of spiritualism and, and like new age practices. And I was actually looking at some, some statistics um, about witchcraft, right? Witchcraft. Wicca is the, the religion of witchcraft. And it's like one of the fastest growing religions in the country. In, in 1990, there were 8,000 practitioners of witchcraft, Wicca. 2008, there were 340,000 people practicing Wicca. 2014, between one and one and a half million people practicing Wicca. That's crazy. That, that's like 8,000 in 1990 to one to one and a half million in 2014. I don't know what that number is now, but, but I, I see that in our culture. There's, you know, people like exploring tarot cards and Ouija boards and crystals and like all this stuff. And I think what that's come out of is, is relativism, this acceptance of all things spiritual. Just find whatever helps you and then practice it and explore it. And it's, it's going to be good for you. And it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous. But I think that these are two ways of seeing the world that our culture is like really kind of uh, multiplying and reinforcing. And, and it's dangerous. My goal for today, though, is to help you have a worldview that is shaped not by culture, 
but by God's kingdom and God's word. I want to help you have a supernatural worldview where you're not rejecting all things supernatural, but you're also not just open to whatever is out there in a supernatural sense. I want uh, to help you have a worldview that's shaped by God's kingdom and God's word. Sound good? Cool. So to do that first, I need to talk about what worldview is. Some of you maybe heard me say that word and you're like, I don't really understand what that is. Everyone has a worldview, okay? Worldview is simply, I, I have glasses on, okay? These glasses, I don't really think about the fact that I have them on. I, I put them on when I woke up this morning and I've not really acknowledged the fact that they're there, but they affect how I see everything, right? My, I, I wouldn't be able to tell who the people in the back row are if I didn't have my glasses on. They affect the way that I see everything. In, in, in a, in a, in a non-physical sense, like our worldview is, it's almost like glasses. They are the lens through which we see and understand and perceive the world around us. And our worldview is shaped over time. It's, it's almost like uh, the operating system in your mind. It, it helps you understand what's going on in the world around you. Uh, a quote that I really like, worldview is your mental grid that transfers input into cognition. And so I have a little picture up here. Um, is it up here? Maybe in a second. Yeah, there we go. Okay, I'm just going to use this to explain what a worldview is real quick. So uh, every day you experience tons of events. Things are happening all around you. you. You have all already had hundreds of micro experiences in your day, okay? And, and we'll call those events input. So you experience input. Everybody has a unique worldview that's shaped by a whole slew of things. The culture that, that you live in, the, the religion that you grew up practicing, you know, the language that you speak, your ethnicity, education, social status, um, wealth, upbringing, trauma, the, the social groups you're part of. All of your life experiences up to this point, and entertainment, like all of these things shape your worldview. They affect how you understand events that are happening around you all the time throughout your day. And so you experience something, it, it subconsciously passes through your worldview, and your worldview shapes how you understand that event. So, for example, imagine like thunder and lightning, okay? If I see thunder and lightning in the sky, uh, my worldview leads me to an understanding that it's just a discharge of electricity from clouds, right? That's it. That's all it is. People 3,000 years ago had a completely different worldview. They understood the world in a different way. They didn't understand uh, electricity being discharged from clouds. They might have seen thunder and lightning and thought, okay, like what's happening is gods are wrestling up in the sky and it's dangerous and we need to take shelter. Same exact input, same event, but different worldviews lead, lead people to completely different understandings. And we all have a worldview and every one of our worldviews are unique. What's critically important is that we let Scripture and the truth of Scripture shape and affect how we see the world. This is why the Bible is so important. This is why building a strong relationship with the Word of God is so important because our worldview is being crafted for us all the time, like without us even realizing it. Uh, and the thing is, though, we can be intentional about what we let shape our worldview, and when I think back to like my, my freshman year of college, I didn't know that I was doing this at the time, but when I decided to follow Jesus, uh, another, like a part of that decision was I was deciding to let Jesus in his word shape the way that I saw the world. 
I, I came to the, the point where, where I understood that the way that I view my future, the way that I view um, relationships, it was so deficient. The way that I viewed women and the, uh, the world around me and other people, like it just, it wasn't working out. The way that I understood what success was, was not working out. My worldview was deficient and it was broken. And it was leading me to very messed up understandings about the world around me and about myself. And I came to the end of myself, decided I wanted to follow Jesus. And when I gave my life to him, I, I also sort of surrendered my worldview to him. And he started to shape how I understood the world around me. He started to shape how I viewed success and my future and purpose and women and relationships and all these other things. His words started to shape that. That's why having a deep, intimate relationship with the Word of God is so important because you know who else wants to shape your worldview? The enemy. He wants to affect the way that you see the world. So my goal for today is to affect your worldview. And and so what I'm going to do for the rest of the time we have together this morning, I'm just going to dive into a few uh, key supernatural elements of what a kingdom worldview looks like. These are a few different points that just in my relationship with Jesus, um, I, I did not see the world through the lens of these five things before I met Jesus my freshman year of college. Um, but these five things that I'm going to get into have radically affected how I see and understand and interact with the world around me. And my hope is that, that they would have the same effect on you. And there's tons of things I could ca- talk about. Um, like I said, the whole Bible is a book full of supernatural stories, but I just have five. Okay, so first, first thing, a supernatural kingdom worldview holds the resurrection of Jesus as the cornerstone of our faith. Okay, it's Easter. Um, but even if it wasn't Easter and I was preaching this sermon, this would still be my first point because this is everything. The resurrection of Jesus is, it is the cornerstone of what we believe. But if you, if you take a step back and think about it, a lot of us were raised in church and have been hearing the gospel our whole life. But like, take a step back and think about this. The cornerstone of what we believe is that a man 2,000 years ago, who we've never, like, met him physically. You know, we, all, we have a relationship with him, hopefully. But a man that lived 2,000 years ago died. He was executed. And he was in a grave for three days. And then he came back to life. That's the cornerstone of what we believe. That's like the crux of what we believe. Paul, in um, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 and then 17 through 19, he said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul hinges everything on the resurrection. What he's saying there is that if the resurrection didn't happen, we're all wasting our time. Like we should just get up and go home and have lunch because this is pointless if the resurrection didn't happen. He hinges everything on this one event. And if you even look at Romans 10, 9, and 10, this is a a really common scripture that like if I'm trying to lead someone to Jesus, this is a scripture that I would take them through. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the critical component of salvation. 
It doesn't say believing in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, which if, if we believe that he was raised, um, we also believe that he died for our sins. But it, it's drawing emphasis to the point that he was, he, believing that he was raised from the dead brings about salvation. It is the cornerstone. If, if that thing didn't happen, everything else crumbles. And so a question worth asking is like, why is this so important? Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? And it's so important because if you go all the way back to, to Genesis, right, when Adam and Eve eat the, the tree and sin comes into the world, God says to them, before the day you eat, eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And they ate the fruit of the tree and they didn't physically die in that moment. But what happened is, is they died spiritually, right? They were separated from God because sin came into their life, so they were separated from God. And, and physical death came into this world, and this world that we live in is full of death. Death is like the enemy that none of us can evade. None of us. Like, death is coming for all of you. We all, we, you all have an expiration date. You will stop breathing, and you will die someday. That's inevitable. Death is the, the consequence for sin. And what Jesus is doing when he, he dies on the cross and he's in the tomb for three days, and then he reverses that consequence. He overcomes death. He beats it completely. He, he overcomes the consequences of sin. He overcomes sin itself. And in rising from the dead, he also is, is showing to us that he is God and that he has authority, he has power over death. And the beautiful thing is that when you believe in him, like Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, you believe that God rose him from the dead, you actually get to be brought in to that resurrection, right? And, and what we believe is that, that you, when you believe in Jesus and you follow him, like you come to life spiritually, and even though, yes, your physical body is gonna die someday, I actually view death more as like a graduation, you know, Paul actually said to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said it'd be better for me if I get to, to die and, and go on and be with my Lord, right? Death is like a graduation. Our physical bodies are going to pass away still, um, but we are going to receive new resurrection bodies just like Jesus did forever. This is why the resurrection is so important because when we uh, believe in Jesus, we, we get to partake in this over, the, the, the way that he overcame death. And this, the resurrection, it's supernatural, but it's also completely reasonable. Like, it is a reasonable thing to believe in. It's such a historically verifiable event. And I don't have time to get into all of the apologetics of why, but I'll give you one thing. This is awesome. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul is speaking, and he says, Then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So, after Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, he appeared to over 500 people. Over 500 people. Hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus. And many of those people, and all except for John of Jesus' disciples, many, and many of those 500 went on to die for their faith. Right? And, and these are the people that knew. Like if Jesus actually rose from the dead, they, they knew that. And if it was all a hoax and a lie, then they also knew that. And the chances that all of these people would be willing to die for something that they know is a lie is unlikely, right? And so there's, I don't have all the other apologetics arguments. I don't have time to get into those right now. But the resurrection is a very historically verifiable event in history. 
And the awesome thing is that when we believe in the resurrection, like not only do we receive eternal life, but, but God changes and transforms our life here on this earth. And the way that he does that is by filling us with his spirit. And that leads me to the next uh, point. A supernatural kingdom worldview understands that we are inhabited by a spirit. The spirit of God. Think about that. Right? Once again, another point that if you grew up in church, like you've heard this uh, your whole life. But we believe that, that when, I, when we come to an understanding and a belief and a, and a place of surrender to Jesus, a spirit that is not your spirit, comes into you and then lives inside of you for the rest of your life and leads you and guides you and speaks to you and transforms you and renews you. That is so supernatural. But that's what we believe. The Spirit of God comes into us when we believe in and choose to follow Jesus. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you believe, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the cool thing too is that the Spirit that lives in us, the Spirit of God that lives in us, has an agenda. He has an agenda. And his agenda is to change you and to change the world through you. Titus 3, 4 through 6 uh, talks about this first part, this idea of the Holy Spirit changing us and renewing us. It says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The Holy Spirit wants to, to move in and kind of clean up, clean up your house, you know, he wants to, to, to renew you and regenerate you and wash you and transform you into the image of Jesus. He wants to, to work in you to make you look more like the life of God's Son. That's his agenda, but his agenda is also to transform the world through you. So the Spirit that came into you at salvation wants to transform the world through you. Acts 1.8 says, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's a promise from Jesus. He's saying when the Spirit comes into you, what's going to happen is you're going to be filled with power. And that word power, it's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the, the word dynamite from. Like explosive power. When the Spirit comes into you, he is going to give you power. Power to do what? Power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and the spirit that he's talking about um, that's going to come to the disciples, it's the same spirit that, that wants to come into us. He wants to empower us to be Jesus' witnesses in the earth. Understanding that, that we are inhabited by the Spirit of God and he wants to change us and change the world through us is critically important when it comes to having a supernatural kingdom worldview. And, and like even, man, my relationship with the Holy Spirit, I remember when I first met Jesus uh, my freshman year of college, I didn't really know much about the Holy Spirit. Um, but then around my second year of college, I, I started to just like see things in Scripture and, and notice things in people's lives that I really looked up to who, who would talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. And I just, I noticed like something's different. Like they live with this power almost. Like they see things happen. 
man, they see God show up. And I started to get hungry for that same thing. And, and uh, man, over the past six, seven years, like, I, I feel like I've developed a relationship more and more with the Holy Spirit, right? He's personal. He's relational. He is, uh, he is God. He is our experience with God, right? God is up in heaven and Jesus is at his right hand and his spirit is here on the earth. His spirit is here in us. And there's so, many, so much scripture about th- this idea of being led by the spirit. In Romans chapter 8, it says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And there's scripture in Galatians 5 um, that, that talks about how those who are led by the spirit will no longer gratify the desires of the flesh. Like, this spirit that lives in us wants to guide us through life. He wants to speak to us. And when he does, he'll never contradict what the word of God says, but, but this is a spirit that's in us that wants to speak to us and wants to lead us and wants to guide us. So it's important that we honor him and we recognize that, that that's what he's trying to do. Next thing. This is kind of right in line with, with the uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Next thing is, is the miraculous. Okay, a supernatural kingdom worldview believes in and pursues the miraculous for the glory of God. In, in much of the church and in my own life, I've experienced this, we lack faith that God can show up and do incredible things right now. I don't know about you, but I lack faith. Like, if, if someone dies <laughs> and I am interacting, like there's a person that is not conscious, uh, it is very unlikely that I am going to think, like, God can and will raise this person from the dead if I pray for them right now. But we look in, in this story with Jesus and Lazarus, and that happens, right? Or, or it's so hard for me when, when I'm faced with, like, uh, maybe a person I love has a, a physical affliction or sickness or something wrong with their body. Like, it's so hard for me to pray with full confidence and no doubt that, that if I pray, something's going to happen. It's hard. I feel like we lack faith that God can show up and do incredible things right now, but that's not the way Jesus demonstrated the kingdom for us. Once again, in this series, something we talked about is that when Jesus came and did his ministry on the earth, like he's showing us what the kingdom of God is like. He is demonstrating the kingdom for us. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known, that he being Jesus. Jesus has made God known. Jesus is showing us exactly who God is and, and what his kingdom is like. And what did Jesus do? Man, he did so, like, his life, his ministry was full of supernatural, miraculous things. From, from casting out demons, to healing the sick, to raising people from the dead, to multiplying bread and fish, and, and knowing information about people before he met them. That was, his ministry was full of that. He's trying to show us what his kingdom is is like, and, and he's showing us that God, the God that we worship and follow, is a God who shows up. He is a God who shows up. I believe that, that the miraculous, it should be a normal pursuit in the Christian life. Not because it's cool, not because it's impressive, not to make a show or anything like that, but because it's a normal part of Jesus's life. And it's on all, so many of the pages of the New Testament. 
1 John 2, 6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. Whoever says he abides in him, Jesus, ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And in the spiritual gifts that, that it's talking about there, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, there's a lot of information in those chapters about spiritual gifts. I'm not going to read them, but in chapter 12, it, it runs through different gifts of the Spirit that, that God bestows on people. And it talks about gifts of healing, and it talks about prophecy, and it talks about the miraculous, and it talks about all of these supernatural things. And then two chapters later, we're commanded to earnestly desire these things. Earnestly. It's, a, it's not a suggestion. It's actually a command. And it's because these things display the glory of God, like they show his power and his goodness. And I, I have the privilege of, I feel like I have a lot of friends and, and people that I've walked through life with that, that really do have faith from the miraculous, and they have seen God do crazy things. But I think a lot of times we let fear keep us from maybe praying in this way or maybe pursuing the miraculous because we're just, we're scared of like, what if he doesn't show up? You know that story that I read uh, at the very beginning in Acts where Peter and John are going into the temple and there's a crippled man laying on a mat and they lock eyes with him. Like imagine if that guy didn't get up in that moment. Do you know how cringy that would be? If Peter's like, rise, take up your mat and walk and the dude's like, what are you talking about, bro? Like that's like such a cringy, uncomfortable like insensitive thing to do, you know? I, I surely would be afraid that the dude wouldn't stand up. Like, I don't think I would be so bold as to say, hey, bro, get up, walk. Like, he hasn't walked his whole life. But what that shows me is that Peter and John, like, they had a, such a radical faith. Like, their faith is radical far beyond mine and far beyond anyone that I've ever met. But guess what? The dude got up and walked. Like it worked. We let fear of, of what, ha what might happen if he doesn't show up keep us from stepping out in faith in the first place. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's the right move. Like, man, I think that when we, when we take a step in faith and we step into a place of risk and we pray a really bold prayer, maybe ask God to show up and heal a person, whatever, like, I think that, that our faith pleases God so much. And you know, I've prayed hundreds of prayers for impossible things and, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. But I think that faith pleases God. I feel like I barely have a mustard seed worth of faith for this kind of stuff, but I, I've seen incredible things. I've seen two different people healed of hepatitis C through just prayer. I've seen multiple people miraculously healed of insomnia total inability to sleep. I remember like five years ago, a dude was talking to him. He said he sleeps maybe an hour a night. We prayed for him at Life Group, texted me the next day, got eight hours of sleep, and he was healed. He never struggled with insomnia again. I've had family members and friends completely healed of infertility. A, a doctor told my sister, you will never have a child. She has three kids. <laughs> I've seen people's knees healed. I've seen backs healed. I've seen a person that, that was deaf, born deaf, recovered their hearing. I have a friend who prayed for a person with no pulse who got up, stood up. 
I've had people that I've never met before come up to me and have a, a prophetic word for me that is like spot on accurate to the point where they, they understood details about my life that were impossible for them to know. I'd never spoken with them before. And God had showed them something specific about my life. I've had the same, th- I've been on the, the giving end of that before where God shows me something about a person and it's actually accurate. And I, I don't, I, I want to grow, man. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I see enough of that stuff. It's convicting when I read the pages of Acts and I read the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus. Like, I look at, at how much of their ministry involved the miraculous and the supernatural. And I look at my life and I'm like, j- nothing. Like, there's barely anything in my life like that. And I, but I want to pursue that. I want to be hungry for that because I think it's important. Like, I, I believe that that is supposed to be the normal Christian experience, normal elements of the life of a Christian. My prayer is that, that we would obey Scripture, that we would earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And, and, you know, when you go out on a limb and you pray for a person, they don't get healed, or you, you pray for God to move in a miraculous way and nothing happens— that we wouldn't like get discouraged and just stop trying, but that we would just seek to grow. You know, God, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's the attitude I want to always have. I believe, but help my unbelief. God's kingdom does not just cons- consist of intellect. It's not just understanding the right doctrine and, and the right theology. Like, that's so important, but Jesus demonstrated for us that God is a personal God that shows up and moves in the moment. And I believe that he wants to do that on, on the earth. I believe he wants to do that on our campus, in our lives, in our families. I believe he wants to show up. So a supernatural kingdom worldview, I believe, pursues the miraculous for the glory of God. Next thing, a supernatural kingdom worldview recognizes that there is a cosmic conflict happening. I, I talked about this a little bit at the beginning. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of evil in the heavenly places. It is so important that we see the world through that lens. So important. I had a friend um, a couple weeks ago. He's a guy that I've been meeting up with. He's not a Christian. Uh, he's like, that, that, the relativism stuff, he is like fully entrenched in that worldview. He's super just spiritual and like new agey and just into all these like crazy practices. He does all, all like a bunch of really weird new age practices and goes to classes and meditation stuff. And he invited me and Ashley to go with him uh, to this like Friday night meeting that he was doing. And I, I was like, no, I'm not going to that. And he's like, why not? It'll be really cool. And, and I was like, I'm not going to that, not because I think it's like fake or dumb, but because I actually think it's dangerous. And I, and I have a worldview that understands like there is a conflict between two kingdoms. And this conflict is over. It's for influence, right? God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world, are, I, I believe, are, are fighting over influence, and so I'm not going to, like, let anything influence me in a spiritual way other than King Jesus, right? Uh, Paul in—oh, yeah, in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 22, Paul is, is teaching, actually, um, Christians, and they're trying to figure out how to interact with people who practice other religions and sacrifice food to idols, okay? That was a, a really— common pagan practice back in that time. And Paul is trying to disciple and and kind of shepherd people through like 
This is how you should conduct yourself with people that worship idols and sacrifice food to them. He says, what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The point that Paul is, is making here is that when these people are sacrificing food to idols, it's not just that the idol is, is fake. It's that what they're doing, like they're actually sacrificing food to demons. Like there is a spiritual force behind what these people are worshiping. And Paul understood that because I, I believe he understood there is a cosmic conflict between kingdoms. And there are spiritual beings that, that want to pull us away from Jesus and they want worship. So that's why, no, friend, I'm not going to go to the meditation thing with you on Friday because I think it's dangerous and I'm not trying to open myself up to that. And I actually shared my reasoning with him and walked him through my worldview, my supernatural kingdom worldview that, that understands there's a conflict between kingdoms. And it like opened his eyes. He was like kind of shook. He was like, man, maybe I should kind of be careful about all of these spiritual practices I'm exploring. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, 17 through 20, Jesus had just sent out um, 72 of his disciples and he had commissioned them um, with the task of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing the sick. Okay, he sends out these 72 people and he says, go um, proclaim that the kingdom of God is near and heal the sick. Go from town to town, proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick. In verse 17, they come back and this is the report. It says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The reason I read that scripture is because the disciples come back, they're fired up, they're like, it worked. You told us to do these things and it worked. Like, people got healed, like, you know, demons were cast out of people. It was crazy. And Jesus, his take, like, how, how he saw this event was, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What I, what I understand from that scripture is, is that these disciples, like, they were engaging in offensive spiritual warfare. Like, they threw some shots on the enemy, and it worked. Man, he fell, and Jesus witnessed, and, and it's awesome. Like, that's so exciting. And I, I read that scripture to, to just illuminate the fact that, like, we are in a spiritual war, and when we talk about spiritual warfare, I think people have this image in their mind of like spiritual warfare almost exclusively means like the enemy is attacking us, you know, or things are really hard in our life or uh, we've just lost something that's like really important to it, whatever. I don't know. But spiritual warfare can actually be an offensive thing. It can be an offensive thing. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates, of, the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That implies that the church is taking on the gates of hell. It, charged, it, it implies that we're like, we're charging, right? 
We're fighting. We're, we're taking the offensive in this battle. And I believe that we can actually engage in offensive spiritual warfare. When you, when you love someone that doesn't know Jesus, when you share the gospel with someone, when you pray for a person in your life, when you demonstrate and, and reflect the kingdom to the people around you, like you are engaging in offensive spiritual warfare. When we go Friday night and worship on campus, like I, I view that. I'm so excited about that. That's like an, that's like an offensive thing. Man, we're going to the place that we're trying to reach and we're just going to worship our king. We can be on the offensive in this spiritual battle. It's important if we want to have a kingdom worldview that we understand there is a conflict between these two kingdoms, that there is an unseen realm, right? This conflict plays out in the physical world in some ways, sure. I don't, I don't understand all of how that works, but it also plays out in this unseen realm, right? Like, if, if you um, look at, there's this kind of uh, undertone in, in the whole story of Scripture that there is an unseen reality, right? There's angels and there's demons and there's spiritual forces and there's all this stuff and I, I can't really wrap my mind around it and I don't have time to, to explain what I do think about all of that. There's actually a book uh, called The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. He's a theologian. Um, I recommend it. It's kind of academic, but if you like really want to uh, get a better grip on the unseen realm, that book is awesome. Um, or the Naked Bible, Bible podcast. That's a, a podcast that he does. I don't have time to get into to, to all of what I think about the unseen realm, but my eyes were open to it. Uh, the summer after my sophomore year, I was in India, and I saw, a, I saw a person manifest a demon in front of my eyes, and it was insane. Like, I, it, it rocked every paradigm that I had. <laughs> I had I'd never, I'd read about the stories in the Bible, Jesus casting out demons, but to see a person in front of me convulsing and shaking and vomiting and speaking words that did not sound humanly, like, it changed my, it changed my worldview. My worldview changed. And, and I remember going back and, and just looking at Scripture and being like, oh, wow, Jesus was interacting with this stuff all the time. Like, Jesus was casting out demons like every other chapter. But that opened my eyes to the fact that there is, there is an unseen realm and there are spiritual forces that are working against us and working for us. And, and I, I, I just want to open your eyes to that, right? I just want to open your eyes to the fact this conflict is real and that there is an unseen realm. Last point. A supernatural kingdom worldview relinquishes control to God and trusts him with everything. Even in impossible situations, tragedy, failure, fears, trauma, everything. A supernatural kingdom worldview relinquishes control to God and trusts him with everything. This one might not sound very supernatural, uh, but, but it is. It is. And, and I just, so I'm, I'm, I'll talk about my own life for a second. Um, I haven't, I've been through some hard stuff in life. I'm sure there's people in this room that have walked through way more challenges than I have. You've, you've dealt with loss. You've lost people really close to you that you love. And, uh, and that's, that's hard, right? Life serves us challenging circumstances. It's inevitable. We're all going to deal with loss. We're all going to deal with failure. Things will be difficult in all of our lives at some point. Maybe some of you are in a spot like that right now where you're walking through some really serious challenges. 
for me, when, when I have experienced challenges in my life, I have a, there's this temptation I think that we have to like ask God, why? Why did that person I love have to die so young? Why? And I've tried to ask God that question when I've been in the midst of difficult, hard things, especially loss. I try to ask God why. Uh, but what I've come to realize is that, that why is really not the best question to ask. For a few reasons. One, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We are not going to be able to understand why. If, God, if, if I'm, you know, me, disgruntled, frustrated, broken, sad me is like, God, why? And he shows up and he's like, here, let me tell you why. I guarantee you I would not be able to understand his reasoning because he's God. Like he spoke the world into existence. He spoke the universe into existence. We cannot fully comprehend his motives, his reasons. We're not going to be able to understand why. And, and so what I've found is that the much better option is rather than asking like, God, why? Taking the perspective of like, God, I, I don't understand why, but I trust you. And I know that you're good. And I know that you love me. And I trust you. Why, it, it almost like is, is kind of this, this question that, that like pushes him away or it kind of puts God on, on trial, you know. But, but when, we, when we get over that and we're like, God, I, I don't know why. I don't know. I'm not going to be able to understand, but I just trust you. I trust that you're good. It's like we're, it's, it's, it's like an embrace, you know, from him. A supernatural kingdom worldview relinquishes control to God and it trusts him with everything. Uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2, I love this scripture. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul, in that scripture, appeals to us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, a sacrifice, it's, it's something that you've given away, right? If, I, if I'm sacrificing something, it means I'm letting go of it, I'm releasing it. And in this scripture, Paul encourages us to, to give our bodies, our whole being, to God as a living sacrifice. To trust him with everything, to relinquish control to him. My life is yours, God. That, that worldview is so not the worldview that, that culture has or that we live in. Most worldviews put self at the center of everything. And, and hoard control, like are not willing to let go of control. We want to just try to control everything. And we put self at the center of everything, but a kingdom worldview does not see self as the center of everything. A kingdom worldview sees King Jesus as the center of everything. And it trusts him with everything. It relinquishes control to him. You know, this, what we're part of, like this life, it's, it's really not supposed to be our story. And the cool thing is it gets so much better when we realize that and we surrender to Jesus. It's not, it's not supposed to be our story. When we abandon everything, though, and we follow Jesus, we get swept up into the most incredible story ever. We gain a purpose that is far superior to any other purpose because it's eternal. And it's, it's a, a purpose where we get to partner with the God of the universe. 
right? So I, I, I believe that a supernatural kingdom worldview gets that and it relinquishes all control to God. It lets go of the things that we try to, to, to control and understand and just trust him with everything. Jim Elliott, uh, he's actually a missionary who was martyred. He has this quote. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We're not going to be able to keep this life, this body. It's passing away. It's temporary. But if we give this life up, we get something we will never lose. And it's relationship with Jesus. It's eternal life. It's forgiveness of our sin, right? It's participation in the resurrection of the dead. It's better than anything else. And so my, my challenge, my encouragement to you is like, follow Jesus. You know, trust him. With that point, trust him. He loves you. No one has ever loved you or sacrificed for you the way that he has. And if you don't have a relationship with him, like you can, you can say yes to that at any time, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Surrendering to him as Lord and belief in, in what he did, what we're celebrating today, the resurrection from the dead, when you, when you make that decision, like you are brought into eternal life, you're brought into a relationship with him. And if you haven't made that decision, I encourage you to do that today. When we pray in this, this last worship set, there'll be people around the room. You can, you can get prayer from them, for them. Talk to them. If you want to follow Jesus, talk to them. Another thing, just, with, with, um, just in response, I, I felt really like convicted and challenged when I was preparing the, the part of my sermon talking about the miraculous stuff today. And it's cool. I, I, man, I've seen God grow our church so much in that regard. That whole earnestly desire spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 14.1. I feel like our church has is, is gr- grown so much in earnestly desiring spiritual gifts and practicing them and, and walking them out. Um, but I think, man, I think God wants to grow us even more in that. And, and if, if as I was talking about that, you are like thinking about, man, maybe, maybe you have a, a health problem, right? Or a disease or some type of diagnosis or pain in your body, get prayer, right? We believe that, that God is living and active and that he has power. He can heal our bodies. And so I'd encourage you, get prayer. Have one of the people on the prayer team pray for you and lay their hand on you. Um, and anything else, if there's anything that you, you feel like you need prayer for, uh, you can do that. But yeah, worship team, you can come up. Um, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to pray for us.